Gary Chapman, who is a, uh, an author of the book, The Five Love Languages, I'm sure a few of you have read it or heard about the book before, but uh, he once wrote, our most basic emotional need is not to fall in love, it is to be genuinely loved by another, to know that love grows out of reason and choice, not instinct. I need to be loved by someone who chooses to love me, who sees in me something worth loving. Every single person on this earth is created for relationship. Each one of us are made with a deep need and desire for relationship, community. We're born into this world in a family, right? And whether that that family lasts a few seconds or a lifetime, it's necessary relationship for life to begin, right? Even once a child is born, the relationship it has with its mother is a complete dependency. They need the milk to survive, the the love and care and support in order to grow up. We're created for relationship, and and each of us, like I said, have this deep need for intimacy, for connection, for community, and yet there are vast differences when we look at humanity as a whole, right? We are each completely unique and different and good in that way. The color of our skin, the the languages we speak, the political views we hold, the the type of work that we do and the type of work we enjoy. Each person in this world is unique and like no other, which is amazing and good. And though these differences are good, we've often used them to separate ourselves from other people. We've created ideas like the caste system where where we, we value people or we give them a worth depending on the color of their skin. Uh, Some people in history took slaves, right, regarding people as less worthy or giving them less value in life simply because of their financial status or their ability to work or not. And it might be easy to think that these are some of the systems of old, that we don't really think like this anymore, but we still do in many of these same ways. We still treat one another in this way, and it's not very different, right? We categorize people based on the work that they do and whether we think that's respectable work or not, or if it's important as our own. We judge people based on their sociability, their appearance, uh, their morals, right? Even the ridiculous ways they drive on these Canadian roads. I'm very guilty for that one. Uh, But a psychologist from Harvard named Amy Cuddy began to research why we tend to judge people, and she looked at rather our first impressions and why we are very judgmental in our first impressions with people. And and in her research, she found that it's, it's likely due to our looking for a threat within people. Do they, do they seem like they're going to threaten us in life, or are they going to be okay? And so we try to answer the question, can I respect this person, or should I respect this? Can I trust this person? And, and when I was reading this article, I found it so sad that our initial reaction to meeting a person is to immediately gauge whether or not they're someone that we can categorize as a threat or as a trustworthy person. But it wasn't always this way, right? The Bible tells us that we as humanity were created in God's image and that we, because of this, have a need for relationships and a need to treat each other with love and respect. So, this morning, I, wanna, I want us to take a look at how God has created us in his image and what that means in the way that we should treat one another. Uh, so we're going to look at what it means to be created in God's image, uh, what our relationships should look like because of that, uh, and then some just very practical steps that we can all take in, in allowing Jesus to transform the way that we see people 
and the image of God in them. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be starting in Genesis chapter 1. Super easy to find, first few pages of your book. Uh, We're going to be reading Genesis chapter 1, starting at verses 26, and then reading to the end of chapter 1 there. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And this is at the end of, or the the sixth day of creation here. God has made the rest of creation, and now he's bringing this uh, this into creation here. And then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I will give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. The, the imago day, the image of God is the Latin term for it, uh, is something that's, that's been studied by theologians, people for centuries, for hundreds and hundreds of years, because even when we hear it read this morning that we are created in God's image, that's fantastic, but it, it, seems, it seems vague. It seems a little not very obvious as to what that actually entails. What does it mean that we are made in His image? Do we look like Him? Do we smell like Him? What does that mean? Uh, but from what we just read, there's an essence that we can capture of what that image means here. Um, uh, look, at the, look at the task that God gave humanity once he had put his image in them. He said, fill the earth and subdue it. Reign over the animals, right? The, the, the language here is used with a lot of power behind it. Right Now, now reigning and subduing, these, this language to us might seem very... Um, very negative. It carries almost this idea that, you know, ruling and subduing are terrible things and they've oppressed humanity. And that, that is true. Looking throughout history, kings have subdued nations, uh, taking whatever they wanted from citizens. Um, rulers would subdue the peoples and, and force them into labor, enslaving masses. But as God's original creation, we were called to reign over the earth and to subdue it to reign over the animals, not in, not in power-hungry ways, but in tending and taking care of. And that looked like gardening for the first people. Adam and Eve, they were given the ruling task of cultivating the Garden of Eden, to use the materials that were in front of them to, to create, taking the raw products of the earth to craft something beautiful and new. Right? That was this essence of God's image within them. And if you, look at, if you look at Genesis 2, verses 11 and 12, there's this kind of really weird verse, if you're ever reading through the beginning of Genesis, uh, and you come to this point where it says, it just gives a brief description of the land. I'll, I'll read it for you. It says, The first branch of the river, called the Pishon, flowed around the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. Why did the author want to write in 
I would argue, even one of the most important books of the Bible that lists our creation, how God made us and the importance he put behind us, why did he just describe a bunch of resin and gold? Right? It's because these were the resources that God gave people in order to use, to create, to subdue the earth, to take the gold out of the earth, to collect the resin, to make beautiful things with it. And so when we, when we look at what it means for us to be created in God's image, part of that is to participate in creating, right? To use what he's given us, to, to build neighborhoods, to build communities, to build airports, planes, to craft instruments. These are all beautiful things. And another aspect of what that image looks like within you and me is that we were made for relationship, Another aspect, um, or actually, uh, the, the plural language here, even when we're looking at what we just read a little bit earlier here, the way that God talks to humanity, he uses a very plural language, right? Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And if we look and compare this, jumping forward to the Gospel of John, we read that the Word existed in the beginning, that God created everything through the Word and that the word is Jesus, right? God is three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He is always in relationship with himself. And I'm not going to explain the Trinity this morning. That's another sermon or few. Uh, but what I want to point out is that we were, we are created for relationship just as God is in relationship. We were meant for that same perfect relationship out of the Father's own perfect communion with the Son and with the Spirit, He creates you and me. And His intention is that we would enjoy the same type of beautiful and perfect relationship with one another and with our God. Which is why when, when God created mankind, He said it's not good for man to be alone, which is very different than the other creatures He had made. There's a difference there. Something about our nature is incomplete without relationship. So being and made in God's image, we are created to rule, to reign, and to relate to one another. But when we sinned, we, we, we maimed a part of God's image within us, right? We, we, we took both this relational aspect and this ruling aspect of who we were created to be, and we, we turned it a little bit different. We, we took it our own way. And so in, in the garden, humanity was given a choice. We were allowed to choose between our own version of good, taking our ruling and reigning power and doing what we wanted, or trusting in God's version of good, using the gifts we've been given, using the talents we have to serve one another. And as we, as you can all tell, chose our own definition of good, our, our ability to rule and to relate was changed, it was maimed by sin, and we began to use our power and our creating ability to make some pretty brutal things, right? Weapons, pollution, bombs, barbed wire, shackles, electric chairs. Our relationships also fell out of order, though. It wasn't just our ability to rule and reign, but because of our choice to sin, our relationships fell out of line. I mean, I mean look, at, look at what happens right after the fall of man. Adam blames his wife for his own sin. That's always a good thing to do in a healthy relationship. Um, Cain kills his brother Abel because he's jealous of him. And eventually it says that humanity becomes so corrupt and so violent that God has to send a flood 
in order to get rid of this evil that is in the world, the sin that we'd brought into it. And that's only the first few pages. That's not even getting out of the first book of the Bible. Keep reading, and it gets worse. It gets worse and worse. Humans continue to use their God-given authority to manipulate one another, to have control over other people, and to use our ability to rule and reign in unhealthy ways. And this image of God within us was corrupted by choosing our own definition of sin instead of trusting in God. And seeing us in our constant, our constant failure, our selfishness, our, our persistent degrading of His image within us, God decided to send us Jesus, right? Not wipe us out. He decided to save us. God chose to put himself into the world through Jesus and show us what his true authority and reign should look like in this world, how we should, with the image of God within us, act in this world. That we shouldn't use our authority and power to rule over people, but to serve people. And so Jesus bent down and washed the feet of his friends and his betrayer. He taught us that we shouldn't retaliate in our relationships, that we should show forgiveness and compassion. And Jesus flipped our view of humanity upside down. Where sin had caused us to look out for ourselves, Jesus calls us to look out for one another, to take care of each other. Jesus teaches us that what he says is good and that we can trust him. He came to restore the Imago Dei within each of us. If we are truly made in his image, then what should our relationships look like? If he came to restore that within us, how should we act and live in this world knowing we're still broken, but Jesus came to restore us? First off, we should see each other as equals. We're all different and unique in beautiful ways, and these differences are good. But what we have in common is what gives us incredible value and worth. We're all different and unique, but in Isaiah 58, God, God's people, they've been stuck in this cycle of mistreating one another and, and they, they constantly fail. They walk away from God. And in the midst of this, God describes how they ought to love one another. He reminds them again of what it looks like to truly take care of one another, to love. And so he says, this is what it looks like, to let the oppressed go free. Share your bread with the hungry when you see the naked to clothe them and not hide yourself from your own flesh. He labels all this under the category of not turning your back on your own flesh. Don't do it just for the sake of doing good things, but because of the shared humanity within the other person. You see, every person on this earth is created with uncompromisable worth because of the image of God within us. Our sin, yes, has distorted that image in some way that we act it out, but the worth that you and I have because of what God has, or who God has created us to be, that cannot be changed by our sin. That cannot be maimed enough by our mistakes in order for us to count a person as worthless. And it's impossible to separate a person from the image of God because we are created His. To be human is to be made in His image and to carry that image for better or for worse. So we ought to treat each person with love because they, like us, are created in God's image, even the people that we don't like. As Jesus was teaching one day, he, he was asked 
by a group of what it means or what it would take to gain eternal life. And so Jesus recited the greatest command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor. And as he did, a man stood up and asked, well, who is my neighbor? Looking to justify himself. And uh, Jesus replied with the story or the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm not going to read the whole story, uh, but the essence of it is that a man is robbed along the road And there's three people that pass him by and have opportunity to help him, uh, but only the third person chose to help him, a Samaritan. And the Samaritans were were the type of people who, the people listening to Jesus' story, they would have looked down on him. They would have looked down on the Samaritan because he was of a different culture. There was a lot of disagreements they had in their nationalities. And so the reason Jesus told this story was to try and transform the way that we see each other to help us change what we initially see in each other instead of seeing our differences, the things that make us angry or frustrated, to see each other as God's dearly loved children and as our brothers and sisters. That our our neighbors aren't those who are just most similar to us or, or live directly beside us, right? But that all of humanity is our neighbor. That there is not a person that we should not show compassion towards that we should not try to love or respect. All of us are one in Jesus. There's no division any longer between gender, between races, between status, but we are all equal and one in Christ. And so we ought to see one another as our own flesh and blood, not through the lens of our differences, our mistakes even. And even though we use these differences to elevate ourselves above one another, to let go of that. There's no favoritism with God. And so our relationships shouldn't be marked with favoritism. We should see everyone this way as equals because we are all equally made in God's own image. So second, because we're made in God's image, uh, we should also encourage and support one another to show love and respect. When, When sin first entered this world, the first thing to break down and deteriorate was relationships. It was the first thing. The beauty of of selflessness, of support, looking out for each other, decayed into this looking out for only yourself. So when Jesus came to restore our view of humanity, he told us not to take revenge on someone who hurts us, but to forgive them. Right? To hold no grudge or even to carry a bitter thought towards another person. And we have, we have a hard time in our culture understanding just how far our sin has brought us away from God's original intention in our relationships. But I think we get a glimpse of it when we realize how shocking Jesus' commands are for us. Right? When, we, when, when, when God first gave his people the law, it was a law that governed the people's actions. Right? It was, it was something where you had to physically do. So don't steal, um, don't commit adultery, uh, take care of the poor, offer the sacrifices that you need to. But when Jesus comes... He flips the law upside down and says it's not just about acting right, it's about thinking right, it's about feeling right. That he takes the law and applies it to our hearts and to our minds, that we shouldn't even be angry with a person in our heart, right? We, we shouldn't even think lustful thoughts or judge another person in our minds. Do you see what Jesus did? It was never just about acting right. Not just about doing the right thing, but about being transformed, about seeing the way he sees. And so Jesus stepped into our sinful mess to show us how to love one another. 
He took initiative, grabbing a towel and a bowl of water and washed the feet of his friends and the feet of the one who would betray him. He shared his food with his closest friends, the one who had walked with him for the past few years. But he also passed food to his companion who would later send him to the cross. Jesus showed us how to love and serve one another. He gave us an example to follow, to, to make time for those around us. Right? Not to avoid those we dislike, but to encourage each other as long as it is called today. To speak life instead of talking behind people's backs. Jesus came to restore God's image within each of us by helping us to see how we should treat one another with love and respect. Now, at this point, I hear what some of you are thinking. That's all fantastic. We've heard this all before. But it's impossible. And I'm here to remind you that it is. Right? Without Jesus' help, it is completely possible, impossible to have a completely transformed heart. Without Jesus, we cannot be changed in this world enough to bring back and restore the, the image of God within us by ourselves. Right? Think about it. If the law, the, the, the action-governed rules and regulations that God gave humanity, if we couldn't even follow up to those we couldn't even follow the laws and regulations that governed our actions, how on earth are we supposed to change what's up here and what's in here? How are we supposed to control the hate that we have towards people? How are we supposed to control the negative judgments that we have towards others? If I can't even act right, how can I be blameless in my thinking and my feeling, God? And to, with, and to this, Jesus replies, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We need the help of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So, what's the first step in practice? I'm going to give you some practical steps. To ask Jesus for help. That's always the first step. Always the first step is to go to the one who's in control of everything. So, if you're, if you're worried about a meeting that you have coming up with a challenging coworker, or if, if, you're, if you're seeing an estranged family member for the holidays, if you're, if you're worried or anxious about something, ask God for the help you need right in that moment. Maybe, maybe you see in yourself even a, a great ability to complain about people and you want to change that. Ask God for help. There's no amount of self-help books or, or good works or meditation that can truly transform our hearts. This is the work of Jesus in us. In Ezekiel 36, he gave us this promise and said, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That is the work that Jesus does. That is the only work, or that, is the only work that he can do in our lives. Nothing else can accomplish that. And relying on God, I want to encourage you, it doesn't have to be grandiose in, in big, large ways. Trusting in him can be a simple, God, help me to be humble. A quick prayer like that. But the question is, do you trust Jesus enough that when you ask him for the things that you need, you can step forwards in obedience and go with the respect that you don't quite have in the moment that you need it? He will provide, but we have to trust. Another practical step we can take to, to restore the way that we see this image of God in each other is to pray for our enemies. And this one's hard. <laughs> Right now, now, I would argue that when we hear the word enemy, we think of some you know, weapon-wielding tyrant who's come to work a bunch of evil in our lives. Um, but I would even argue that someone who has hurt us or um, 
said mean things to us or hurt us with their actions. We can treat them as our enemies in life. Jesus asked us to pray for them. So, is there someone who's been on your mind that you're angry about? Is there, is there anyone that you are frustrated with? Don't let your thoughts continue to keep running in the downward spiral of it. Stop the cycle. Ask God for help. Pray in the moment. When you recognize your mind is running over and over how much you don't like that person or that relationship is difficult, pray. Ask God for the help you need to stop that cycle. Your heart will change towards that person because every time you start thinking negatively and change that to praying for them, your heart will begin to follow. It will change to seeing people more in the image of God that he's created them with. And I will put this out there for the people that are like me. If you're praying for someone you dislike, don't pray that God would give them suffering um, or just make their life more difficult than it already is. Uh, Pray for their blessing. That's a hard one. Pray for their blessing, not for the things that you think they need or the ways you think they need to be transformed, but pray for them for blessing, for their finances, for their health, for their home. Pray that they will be filled with hope and joy and peace. And as you pray for your enemy or or anyone who's taking up just some mental parking space in your mind, your heart will begin to change towards them. So stop focusing on the hurt and the anger and begin to see just as Jesus does, see the beautiful person behind the sin that we've come or that we've brought into this world with a worth and a value that no mistake can alter. And last, if you are hurt by a person, I would, I would encourage you to first recognize your own propensity to make the same mistakes. These are really easy ones this morning, aren't they? <laughs> uh, but Jesus knew that it was not only easy, but kind of our natural state to judge people, to look down on others because of their mistakes or failures. And so he tells us that before we go looking in the faults of others, we should first recognize our own ability to make the same mistakes. Before we go taking the speck out of someone else's eye, that we should recognize perhaps we have a log in our own. Because our tolerance for our own sin is far greater than our tolerance for other people's sin. And Jesus didn't say that it was wrong for us to take the speck out of our brother and sister's eye. But he says that we should first deal with the planks in our own eyes. Before we go judging other people for the mistakes they make, we should first recognize that we make the same mistakes. Maybe in different ways, but at the heart it's all the same. It's much easier to have compassion on someone knowing we've made the same mistake as them. And once more, let me remind you, it is impossible to do this without Jesus. We can only do this by relying on him and asking him for the help that we need. Jesus came to break the power that sin has over you and over me. He went to the cross and overcame death and rose once more so that you and I could be adopted into his family as brothers and sisters, as his dearly loved children. So this morning, as, as, we, as we come to the crosses, as we celebrate communion this morning, um, we celebrate the victory that Jesus gave us over sin, the freedom in life that we can have to have this image of God restored within you and within me that we're no longer stuck with our hearts of stone, that we can be given hearts of flesh, that we can change and be transformed by God. Uh, So as as we come forward and celebrate communion together, there's different stations throughout the sanctuary here. Uh, Come forward and uh, and grab the elements and take them back to your seat. 
Uh, if you're unable to get up, uh, please just raise your hand and our uh, Elder Ed will come around and pass you the elements. Uh, but as you, as you take the time during communion this morning, I'd encourage you to take some time to reflect on what Jesus has accomplished through you in his life and his death. Uh, and I'd also encourage you, if there's any relationships that you're struggling with right now, bring those to the feet of Jesus. Jesus wants to bring healing in our lives and relationships are one of the most important aspects of our lives. Take some time to bring to the feet of Jesus anything that is heavy upon your heart or your mind. Give them to him and see what he does with them. So let's celebrate this morning, or the communion. Let me pray for us first. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Jesus, we thank you for the great sacrifice that you have made for us on our behalf that we can be called your own children. God, that we have hope not only in being restored in this life, but eternal life with you. Father, we thank you that we can celebrate this morning the sacrifice that you made for us. It's a bittersweet remembrance, Father. We remember how, how, how much it took to pay the price for our sins. Yet we also celebrate and rejoice knowing that it is done. Father, we thank you that we can, we can have a relationship with one another, and I ask that you'd help us to restore our view of the image of God within each other. Help us to love one another well, Father. We will make mistakes, and so we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for an ability to come quickly back to you in those moments. But Father, in this time, we thank you for the great sacrifice you've made, that we can be made whole and that we can have right relationship with you and with others again. So Father, we thank you for the goodness you've done for us. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.